May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable, be productive, be fruitful in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is a, a joy for me to be here with you today. Um, although, as, as Jessica said, I never attended Asbury, I feel as though at times I've been an adopted Asburyan. And many of you have made me feel that way on, on numerous occasions. Um, one office here in the seminary is actually convinced that I am an adopted son in the seminary, and they love to send me fundraising letters. Um, uh, but if that means that I have the warmed heart of an Asburyan, then I'm, I'm okay to give my part. Just four days ago in Washington, D.C., where I live, uh, a friend of mine joined the Roman Catholic Church. It's been quite the journey for him. He's a former student of mine at Greensboro College, where I taught before I went to the seminary in Washington. Eddie tried a number of different Christian brands. He tried United Methodism. He tried every form of Anglicanism that we appear to have right now. But what he finally ended up on was Roman Catholicism. He loves its history, its dignity, and he loves its magisterium. But joining the Catholic Church isn't like joining other churches, it's a process. When I served a Methodist church in Greensboro, we had a new members class, but it was not a process. I was in charge of it. Um, Eddie had to go through months of classes. And during that time, he attended Mass, but he was dutiful. He did not take communion, as that is not allowed until one is confirmed. He had to gain knowledge of the faith and to participate then in the practices of the church. In other words, he had to develop those virtues that mark out that particular community. The one practice he was worried about, and I think we can all relate, is the first time he had to go to confession. But it's a process that I admire and a process defined by commitment. In our text today, the Apostle Peter likely writing from Rome toward the end of his life, wrote to a people that he wants more firmly committed to the faith and to be formed in that faith. He introduces himself, as you heard, as Simon Peter or even as Simeon Peter, using his Hebrew name together with the name given to him by Christ, Peter the Rock. He quickly moves, however, to what I think is a unique description of faith. And we can easily overlook the introductory comments of the New Testament epistles, but we shouldn't. Uh, I'll admit I've done it. As seminarians, I know that you're more careful with your Bible reading. Uh, the words of the introductory portions of the epistles are rich. Peter writes to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I think the Latin is actually better in this case, as it sometimes is. Don't tell the New Testament profs I said that. I'm not using the Greek. But as a dutiful church historian, I'm more than happy to use the Vulgate. The Vulgate, that gift of St. Jerome, reveals something that the English at least doesn't quite communicate, although it's something that the church fathers point out in their comments. In the second part of verse 1, Peter 
says something astonishing. He says that those who are made righteous by God, in other, word, in other words, the justified, are gifted with the same faith as the apostles. It's not just the same in content, though. That would be part of it, and we shouldn't overlook that. What he's saying, and here's where the Latin is useful, is that we have an equal faith, not just similar, not just the same in content, but the very same faith, equal to the same as the apostles themselves. The root of the Latin, coequelum, is the, the, the word we translate for it as equal or equality, equelum. So while the New King James says like faith and the New Revised says a faith as precious as ours, the Latin describes a faith that is the very same. But how can this be? We haven't seen what the apostles saw. We can't say like John does in his first epistle, the word made flesh is something we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, looked upon and our hands have handled. And yet here Peter, the chief of the apostles, is saying that those who have been given faith by the righteousness of God have been given the same faith as the original 12. For any who have studied the life of the apostles, especially after the resurrection, you know that there is power in that sort of faith. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not simply acquiescing to a set of beliefs, however important that may be. But that's not really what he's talking about. The sort of faith that Peter is talking about here is the sort of faith that Charles Wesley wrote about in one of his great lyrics when he said, give me the faith which can remove and sink a mountain to a plain. But how can we ever gain such faith? Well, I'll tell you the short of it is we can't. It's simply not possible because it has to be gift. Or as John Wesley commented on the text, not by our own works, but by the free grace of God. I'm convinced that those of us in the Wesleyan world have a tendency to talk about the free grace of God or the giftedness of God and then act like Pelagians. I've actually come to believe that different denominations have their own heretical tendencies. Not that we're heretics, I'm not saying that. Um, even though I do have a heresy stamp in my office and I do use it on papers. <laughs> but that as denominational groups, actually have their own quirks and their own patterns and sometimes their own pitfalls. Ours is a tendency to try to work out our salvation in ways that Peter, Paul, and even Wesley wouldn't quite like. Here's the problem. I think we have a hard time accepting gifts. If you give me a gift, I'm supposed to give you a gift, and if I don't, I'm indebted to you somehow. We've all played that game. And yet, that's not how it works with God. We can't possibly give an equal gift. The Christmas carol comes closest to what we can offer, right? Yet what I can, I give him, give my heart. And that's a good start. But all of the Christian life is gift. And this passage is nothing less than a description of the Christian life, or if we want to use Wesleyan terms, the scripture way of salvation. Looking at the pattern that Peter lays out here, we have a similar pattern to Paul. As the Christian life, this profound gift is described as beginning with faith and culminating in love. 
To those who are justified, who have been given the same faith as the apostles, Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied in you or to you. After which he then launches into a particularly deep description of what he means. So let's unpack this just a little bit. This gifted life is described as flowing out of a knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord because his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But as the text uses the word grace, I'm going to have to stop here and actually act like the Wesley scholar that I am for a minute. This term is a term I think that Wesleyans like to throw around in amazing ways. Sometimes we use it so often and in so many different ways that it comes to mean almost nothing. I remember a group of lay preachers I was teaching in Charlotte, North Carolina, they kept on using the word grace over and over again in all kinds of different ways and I finally said, stop, define grace. It didn't turn out so well. The closest any of them could get to define it was something like a nitro pill, which if you have heart problems, you might understand that. But, um, but likewise, with my own students, they do the same thing, um, this word grace. Most often they like to use it when they want extensions on their papers. <laughs> they want me to, quote unquote, show grace. Now, being a staunch Wesleyan, I respond that I am more than happy to empower them to finish their work on time. He didn't laugh at that part. <laughs> but Wesley's own definition of grace, I think, I'm biased, but I think is best. He defined it simply as this. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in many places in his writings, you can insert the word power for grace. Try it out. Grace enables, grace transforms, grace is active and dynamic. It's not passive. And yet we so often confuse it with mercy, which is another one of the great concepts of our faith. Equally wonderful, but not the same thing. This past week as I was packing to come here, I ran across a book in my office that I checked out from your library on a previous visit. I checked it out the last time I was a fellow with the Wesley Summer Seminar four years ago. And so I, um, I returned the book to the library wearing that grin, you know, that somebody has when they know they're caught doing something. Um, and following procedure, they gave me a hefty fine uh, that could have almost replaced the book. By the, word that's, by the way, that's called justice. Your librarian, however, waived the fine. Mercy, that's mercy. The fact that I brought the book back, that's grace. All right? Now, I focus on words like this because words matter to a people formed and shaped by the word made flesh and the word written. It has to matter to us as Christians. And we know what the, when we know what these words mean, we can actually see how just dynamic and radical is God's intention for us. Because he not only uses the words, in fact, I'm talking about Peter, not God. Peter not only uses the words grace and peace. Remember, when Peter uses the word peace, we're talking about somebody 
who encountered the risen Christ and Christ's first words to him, the resurrected one, he said what? Peace I give to you. And so peace has to mean something to Peter in a profound way when he says, may grace and peace be multiplied in you. God's power, God's wholeness made possible by the resurrection, be multiplied in you. But he links all this, Peter links all this, this empowering grace, this transforming power, this new life, so carefully to knowledge. In this, Peter is also following a pattern of the resurrected Christ, who after he greeted the apostles with peace, what did he do? He showed them his hands, ate food in their presence. I like that Luke says that. Ate food in their presence, and then once they'd calmed down, showed them how to read the scriptures. In other words, knowledge of God's vision. Jesus connected peace and knowledge, and so does Peter. Yet I think we have to be careful with the term knowledge, especially in Christian institutions of higher education. Knowledge, for the sake of knowledge itself, is not what the apostle is talking about. Charles Wesley, again, put it so well in one of his hymns that he wrote to be sung by school children. Unite the pair, so long disjoined, knowledge and vital piety. This knowledge is linked to what I think is an active relational engagement. It's why, as one friend once told me, if you want to discover a theologian, don't look first in the study. Look first where they might be at prayer. Or similarly, as William Burt Pope claimed, all fit students of theology are worshipers as well as students. If you get nothing else from this sermon, get this. Nothing in the Christian life, whether it's faith, knowledge, love, peace, virtue, anything, should be seen in isolation. The Christian life is not a compartmentalized jigsaw puzzle. It's a coherent whole made possible by a God who is himself whole, is himself the pattern of completeness and community. And because of this connectionalism, if you'll let me abuse the term, you're never alone. The life of God is in you. The faith of the apostles is your own. And by baptism, you're actually connected to every saint, every child and daughter, of, every child, son, daughter of God throughout time. But the apostle goes even further because this grace, this peace, this intimate knowledge, all gift of God gives us, as he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, as I work at a seminary that's named for John Wesley, I insist that my students in my classes read Wesley. Shocking. And inevitably, because of this, I talk ad nauseum about the doctrine of Christian perfection. Now, Wesley did not necessarily come up with that doctrine. It's arguably to be found throughout church history. But if you're in any of my classes, whether it's Methodist studies or not, you're going to hear about Christian perfection. In fact, I have students in my Church History 2 class read the entirety of a plain account of Christian perfection. But you don't have to read Wesley to get this optimistic view of God's transforming work. It's right here, right in Peter. God has provided all things for life and for godliness, true life, wholeness, godlike life. It's what we're actually called to. 
And God has given us everything necessary to move on to perfection. God has, in fact, predestined this path that those who respond to the offer of grace should not stop at pardon, but might continue on to wholeness. And dare I say it, this wholeness is not something that we should expect only to have later. A few years ago, I was in a Bible study with some believers in the Reformed tradition. Wonderful people. They loved the Bible and they loved food, which is very important. But every time we ran across one of those passages that talked about the great promises of God, they would inevitably resign themselves to, this, that, to an interpretation of it that it's something that happens later. It was this always deferred um, glory. It was like, it'll be better by and by kind of mentality. They couldn't fathom that God had made these promises, these promises of wholeness, and would actually carry them out right now. And yet, this is the beauty of Christianity. The God who calls us to wholeness has actually shown us what it looks like in time, in Jesus. And arguably, God continues to show us what this looks like in his saints, in his church, and in such tangible things as bread, as wine, as water. We don't have a pie-in-the-sky religion. We have a tangible, tactile, even gritty religion that stridently proclaims that God works in life, in time, incarnated, resurrected, now. We have a faith that describes the power of the Spirit, the very life of God, as the, the Pentecost narrative describes to us, descending on a ragtag group of disciples in Jerusalem, in time, in space, changing their lives and sending them out, filling them with this fire that made them go out and proclaim the resurrection to every known corner of the world. This is what Peter's talking about in this second letter. How else would he dare to claim that believers, meaning us, are to be partakers of the divine nature? We have the promises, we have the gifts, it's all gift. And through these we are to partake of the very nature of God. To partake in the very nature of God is to partake in unlimited love. It's, it is eternal, it's selfless love, it's holy love, encompassing, overwhelming love, love that bathes the Christian with life. And this may sound a bit mystical, but that's okay. Not everything in the Christian life needs to be cerebral. And I say that as an academic. <laughs> Julian of Norwich, one of the great English mystics, spoke about this overwhelming love, this nature of God. She was an odd but holy woman. She had this dwelling. I hope you know the story of Julian. She had this dwelling built onto the side of a church in Norwich, England, in the 14th century. The church is actually named St. Julian's. We actually don't know the name of the woman that we now call Julian. But she anchored, she became an anchorite, was the name. She anchored herself in a dwelling to the outside of the church. And once it was built, she never left that dwelling. People brought her food and they took away the refuse. They came for counsel and for prayer and she would give that. She lived in prayer and she had a window cut into the church itself where she could view the altar 
and to see the Mass as it was being said. She's known for her visions, and these are visions of divine, overwhelming love. In one of them, she describes God placing an object in her hand, and you can imagine her with her hand out, and the object in her hand was the size, she says, the size of a hazelnut. Very specific, isn't it? And she asks God, what is this? And God said to her, it is everything that exists. And she was immediately filled with dread that it was so fragile that it could be destroyed so easily. And she was filled with concern. And she worried that it could actually fall into nothingness. But God assured her with these words. This is what he said to her. It lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. We need to recapture that pervasive and world-changing view of God's love. And at the same time, to learn, as Julian did, that the love of God, his nature, not only creates, but sustains, and it makes whole. But that is what the apostle is saying to us here in this text. God wants to give us life, even his own. And in partaking of that life, we will be made whole. But how is that accomplished? I can talk about the glories of that life, but how is it accomplished? It can happen in an instant, that is true. But more likely, it's a process. With both striking moments and rather dull, monotonous development. Not everything in the Christian life has to be grandiose. We need to remember that. Remember that the most astonishing thing that ever took place happened early in the morning, quietly, in a graveyard. But that is why the apostle describes a pattern whereby the believer is led from faith to love. But he's more detailed than that, even if that's a good general description, I think, with what he's saying. As was already read, Peter states that we are to give all diligence to partake of the divine nature and avoid what he terms the corruption of the world via lust. In other words, to avoid a disordered desire. For desire is one of the key elements of a holy life because the holy will desire the holy. My seminary dean used to talk about the sins we have grown to love, meaning the brokenness that we desire in our blindness. But Peter states that we are to desire in all diligence to grow in faith. He says this, you've heard it, but I'll read a little bit of it again. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For in this you will not be barren. Your faith will produce fruit. And that fruit includes wholeness made possible by God. But what happens to us, to get to the point, is that those who partake of the divine nature will dwell in God. And in the day-to-day -day workings of our lives, even the mundane, the boring, the quotidian, even in your homework, God will be present, working, healing, making whole. That's what it means to have a God who actually deigns to become one of us. And here Peter describes the process whereby we grow in grace into that fullness. But I think it can be even more tangible. For God has not only deigned to be one with us in the incarnation, 
but available to us in so many ways. Wesley did say that the Eucharist is the grand channel whereby God gives us himself. He would argue, he would say that we run to the table because God said, I will meet you there, and so we run to meet God there. But as contemporary Wesleyans, as we continue to recapture our heritage, which, which includes Eucharistic devotion, we mustn't limit the work of God. Limiting God's work is the antithesis of our heritage. Why? Because I think we run into a danger of trying to limit the ways in which God might meet us. Let me put it this way. I'm as high church as a Wesleyan can be without being kicked out of the club. But I'll say this, sacraments are a guarantee of God's presence, but they do not have exclusive claim to it. God works through the sacraments. God works through me. God works through you. And we've been given everything for life and for godliness. Yet what does this mean for the world? I have this sign here that says, remember the world. <laughs> or put differently, what do you have to offer? I mentioned in the process, the process that my friend Eddie is going through as he steps into the Catholic Church. He was dutiful, he went to Mass, he would cross his arms as you're supposed to do as a non-Catholic, right? If you go to Mass, when you go up to to uh, receive a blessing rather than the Eucharist itself. And so for months and months, he would come up and he would receive a blessing from the priest. But on one occasion, he went to a different parish and he got in the wrong line, apparently, because there were two lay people el uh, distributing the elements. And he went up with his arms across his chest and he got to the person who was distributing the bread and the man simply said to him, I'm sorry, I have nothing to offer you. Now, to be fair, in his own tradition, he can't offer blessings, but that was the worst thing he could have said. He could have prayed with him. He could have said, go find the priest. He could have said anything except, I have nothing to offer you. The response may have been canonically correct, but it completely missed the point. I told that story to a group of priests and bishops, Catholics, and you should have seen them. They flew back in their chairs like a group of people watching a, a game where it's a championship is on the line and their team misses the goal. Laity, clergy, seminarians, professors, anything in between, we need to ban that response from our lexicon. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who he wanted to grow in faith, grace, peace, godliness, and to be partakers of the divine nature. And by this power of the Spirit, this letter is also written to you and to me for our edification and so that we may be a part of God's purposes in the world. For remember, to partake of the nature of, of the divine is then to partake of the purposes of the divine or to receive and embrace this gift is to become a conduit of it. And for this purpose, we have been gifted with everything, everything for life and godliness. The pattern has been set. 
from faith to love, a pattern of holiness that mirrors Christ. And so now, what what you might ask, do you have to offer? And here's my answer, everything. If you have Christ, you have everything to offer. No matter the context, no matter the situation, no matter the rubrics, you have everything to offer. You You are a partaker of the divine nature. You have Christ. Offer them life. Offer them Christ. Let us pray. Loving Father and your Son, you have given us everything. Everything for life, for godliness, and for the new creation that you have begun in him. Fill us with the same spirit that raised your Son from the dead and that fell upon your apostles at Pentecost. So that being partakers of your very nature, filled with grace and peace, we may become conduits of your holy love in the world. Amen.